1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society and a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today having written well over 150 books. And today we're discussing one of his latest books, Strategy and the Second World War, How the War Was Won and Lost, published by Robinson. Welcome Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
0: The book is an attempt to look at strategy in a comparative context during the World War and as it were, it takes my already existing work on strategy. I've written a general history of strategy, and I've written a book on uh, strategy in the 18th century, and tries to apply some of those ideas and methods to World War II.
1: And what exactly do you mean when you employ the the term strategy in this book? Um, I think what
0: I would say is my focus is on the words tasking. In other words, I don't distinguish, as some people do in the Anglophone tradition, between strategy and policy. That's not a distinction that is more generally seen when people look at the issue around the world. And indeed, one of the problems, I think, with a lot of the literature in Britain and the United States on strategy is it has a rather facile assumption that it's different from policy, that, as it were, policy is done by politicians and strategy by the military. And I'm trying to argue that that isn't the case, and therefore, in light of that, to re-examine what we call strategy when we look at World War Two.
1: What were the strategies of the major powers during the 1930s, you would say?
0: Well, that's an excellent question, and of course it's a movable feast, because one strategy is in part set by the specific conjuncture. In other words, are we talking about, let us say, um, July 1938, or are we talking about February 1939? But it's also in a dynamic response to what are perceived to be the strategic intentions of others, Um, and that by its nature is uh, uncertain, unsettled, and a matter for debate. So, although one can use, I have used, uh, the term strategic culture to imply um, an argument for long-term strategic suppositions, that does not mean that the short-term doesn't have an impact. So, if we're taking the case of Japan, um, rather than saying there is a Japanese strategic culture, I think it's fair to argue that there are different tendencies linked in considerable extent to particular military groupings and that look towards animosity to the Soviet Union, that look towards expansion to China, that look towards Japan being a specific great power. And the relationship between those is not in some way set or preordained. And in the specific case of Japan, um, there was a considerable degree of volatility as reflected factors such as how Japan didn't do better in its border clash, significant border clash for the Soviet Union in 39, how um Japan, Germany unexpectedly attacked um, Poland in alliance with the Soviet Union in uh, 1939, which, of course, not what the Germans wanted. Uh, and then, sorry, not what the Japanese wanted. And then how uh, France and Britain and the Dutch uh, became much weaker in and 1940 uh, to a degree, to an extent, unexpectedly so, and then how uh, Hitler attacked the Union in the summer of 1941 without having told the Japanese he was going to do so.
1: So, from your perspective, Japanese strategy in the post-1937 period uh, was rather faulty. I think it was confused,
0: I mean it was responding to what seemed to be circumstances the Japanese couldn't uh, dictate, which of course is common to other states, but there was the specific problem that um, there was an inadequate cohesion at the centre to bring together different elements within the army and then separately different elements between the army and the navy. Um, and I think that was, in practical terms, a weakness. Um, And it also, I mean, you know, it gets reflected in the fact that when the war goes badly in 44, uh, the Japanese government uh, falls, the Tojo government falls. Um, So it's not as though there is a powerful, dominant group able to provide cohesion all the way
1: through. Why, from your uh, point of view, was the German emphasis on the ultimate battle problematic, strategically speaking?
0: Well, um, that's an excellent question. I'm, what we're looking at here is the uh, what I have called in other work the operationalization of strategy, which I think is a more common problem when people discuss strategy, um, particularly when they think a bit in terms of uh, winning, as you're saying in this case, a major victory. So in other words, for World War One, it's the argument that in drawing up the Schlieffen Plan and other Uh, planning proposals. The Germans were overly concerned to reprise a, a, as it were, cataclysmic victory in battle, which they um, imaged from Hannibal's victory over the Romans at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BCE, uh, ignoring the fact that actually Hannibal had then gone on to not win the Second Punic War. Um, So it is the assumption that by Um, seizing territory, winning battles, killing a lot of people, you are going to win a war because you are succeeding in forcing your will on your opponent. And that actually is flawed because it's based on, first of all, the assumption that the other side is going to have a similar assessment of the equations of Uh, military success or failure to those that you have. So in other words, if you kill more of them than they kill of you, they will see that they've lost. Well, no, actually, that doesn't work like that. And second of all, it's based upon, and this is obviously related to that point, the assumption that you can derive assured political outcomes from military moves. And again, that's foolish in the extreme. So I have argued, as you know, we don't always agree on this, but I've argued, that German war-making uh, in both World Wars um, is particularly poor. I think it was worse in World War Two because um, I think that both that you have um, the, um, the the problem of the Nazis, not which is not just uh, Hitler uh, and his um, malign and foolish uh, suppositions, but also the more general. A commitment to an apocalyptic millenarian political strategy. But on top of that, I actually think the caliber of the German military is probably lo- leadership is probably lower in World War II than in World War One.
1: Why did French strategy so singularly fail in 1939-1940?
0: Um, well, it fails in a double sense. The French, like the British, had hoped. That they would be able to deter uh, Hitler from um, launching what becomes World War Two, and that fails in 1939. So there's a failure of deterrence in 39, um, and that's a broader failure. And you see that in a number of respects during the year. I mean, it fails prior. It fails when Hitler intervenes in, to occupy Bohemia and Moravia in the spring of 39. It fails again. Um, when he um, goes forward with war against Poland despite the Anglo-French guarantees of Poland. So it fails in that sense. Then, of course, the British and the French are uh, n- not always of one mind with themselves, let alone each other, on debates as to what have been known as the Long War versus Short War debate, on which there's some interesting work by the Canadian scholar uh, Talbot Inlay. Um, Within particular, a question of, okay, so we're at war with Germany, and Germany, by the way, is allied uh, with the Soviet Union, it's aligned uh, with Japan, and the United States is neutral. So how are we going to move to an outcome that's acceptable to us? Um, and there's a considerable degree of uncertainty there should one be relying on a long war of blockade, um, economic isolation of of Germany and the hope that this provokes the overthrow of Hitler or uh, within, from within Germany or a change of mind on the part of the Nazi leadership, or should one be, be going for shorter war uh, intervention. So as you know, there's tensions over that. And then While it is still, I think it's fair to say, unclear what is going to happen in terms of Anglo-French strategy, the Germans intervene first. Um, Initially, obviously, with their successful conquest of Denmark and Norway, uh, the British and to a degree the French uh, try and intervene on behalf of Norway doesn't work. And then, of course, with the German knockout blow against France, accompanied by their successful invasions of Belgium and Norway. Now, as you know, there is a debate as to the causes of French failure, in particular, whether it is the specific operational uh, ideas which drew on a strategic insight, which is the insight was you're not going to get allies unless you're perceived to be trying to help them i.e., if Germany attacks, you ought to put a major effort on your extreme left flank and move forward to try and protect Belgium and Holland from German attack, which, of course, was the logic behind British strategy towards Greece in 1941, or whether, in fact, there is a broader pattern of, if you like, politico-societal, crisis if you wish to use that term which is provoked uh, by failure um and so in other words we should be looking if you take this second idea to a very different analysis of strategy i myself favor the first interpretation but i am well aware that there are other people who would put their emphasis on the second
1: following from your remarks on this uh, short while ago would it be true to say that German strategic culture was, quote, flawed, unquote?
0: Yes, I think it was flawed. I mean, I've discussed this in the book. I think the, um, there are obviously organizational problems in terms of getting ideas circulating within the system, which includes, if you like, cost-benefit analysis, there is a desperate failure to uh, integrate naval and uh, land um, priorities, planning um, and implementation. Um, there is a failure to understand the air dynamic and uh, an overall um, too strong an interpretation of the you know, uh, emphasis on the views of uh, uh, Goering and the Luftwaffe leadership. Um, And there is a set of wish-fulfillment fantasies about the political benefits that will stem from uh, German military measures, whether they're against Britain or against um, uh, the Soviet Union, or indeed, um, eventually, against the United States.
1: Why uh, did Operation Barbarossa fail? Um, it failed because it was defeated, um,
0: and it was already, I would argue, have argued. I don't know if you know this. There's a new book by me out on mapping World War II, which I think we have discussed, and which I include a, a, you know, some discussion about the situation in September 41. I think the actually the um, strong resistance the um, the Soviets put up on the Central Front had already. Uh, derailed uh, German planning and German casualty assumptions prior to the thrust south to um, um, isolate and subjugate the Soviet forces in in Ukraine. Um, So I think there are specific failures. you know, we could go on about that. We could talk about the difficulty of achieving uh, integration between army groups operating on divergent uh geographical axes we can talk about the problems of keeping uh infantry and armor in coordinated uh sequence um but i think there's also a more fundamental misunderstanding of what is going to happen you know that uh the uh, the view that, um, you know, the over-engineered view um, uh, that um, you can get to, let us say, Leningrad, Moscow and Rostov, which are the goals for the respective army groups in um, uh, 1941, and the Soviet Union's going to collapse. Well, no. I mean, and... So I think that there is a failure of strategy in a whole series of levels. And of course, that's leaving out of the equation the success and resilience. I mean, it's a very brutal regime, the Soviet Union, but the success and resilience of the Soviet war economy, um, the benefit the Soviet Union derived from not being at war with Japan, the benefit the Soviets uh, received from a very early stage of military assistance from uh, other powers, etc., etc., and you know, and so Soviet fighting resilience, which you know, was stronger than the Germans had anticipated.
1: Why were German operations ninth in 1942 not quote an adequate stage two unquote?
0: Well, in we're looking here at the Eastern Front, which is what I was primarily um, concerned with, the actual plan for Operation Blau, Operation Blue, is poorly um, defined. The strategy is unclear. Are they fundamentally going for the... Uh, Caucasus oil wells, are they fundamentally going to try and turn the vulgar? And if so, how on earth are they planning to exploit that? I mean, there's, so there's an enormous problematic there of a lack of strategic clarity as, as to tasking and many of the then implementational or operational, if you wish to use the term, I do like to use the term, uh, consequences that flow from that. Um, are, as it were, not surprising. So gaps opening up, armour being in the wrong place, etc., etc. Then on top of that, I would say probably not adequate discussion when people talk about the failures of 42. I mean, I didn't have space in my book to discuss it about the um, failure to mount sufficient supporting movements on, from operation from army groups north and centre in order to Six sufficient Soviet forces in those areas, I think that was uh, significant and while uh, these operations are going on of course um, the Germans are um, putting pressure on the British in um, North Africa, you can debate we can discuss whether it was logistically viable, whether the uh, actually the, it was going to work or not, but I mean, it certainly did not lead to the outcomes that might have been anticipated and nowhere else were they having any success at eroding uh, the alliance structure against them. So there was no political benefits stemming stemming to them and indeed no uh, coordination of any real uh, respect, uh, even in embryo, uh, with Japan.
1: How would you rate Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt as strategists? And in particular, Stalin, would you agree with uh, the comments of our mutual friend, Thomas Atte, that Stalin was uh, on, in terms of strategy, on the level of, say, Bismarck or Metternich?
0: Well, I think Stalin was certainly very good at playing off other powers. I mean, I think he was very good at that. And... um, his alliance with Hitler in 1939 uh, brilliantly put pressure on the Western powers and from the point of view of his intentions, uh, you know, therefore worked. Uh, I mean, it did leave Germany stronger, So, um, and he hadn't really thought that through adequately. I think one of the problems, let me just say one of the problems is this. And you note this in quite a lot of the work on the Eastern Front War. There's been, as you know, marvellous stuff coming out primarily from American scholars, Glantz and his school, over the last 40 years. And I would say it's largely operational in part because the ability to gain insight into the intelligence world uh, and how that's affecting Soviet perceptions, is very limited. So that to a certain extent, we are operating in a, a vacuum of knowledge when we're addressing Soviet strategy in the military sense. And we still don't know enough, in my view, about the Soviet peace feelers, negotiations, embryonic negotiations with uh, Germany in both 42 and 43. We don't really know, in many senses, what Stalin's priorities were. Now, as you know, I quoted, I think, in my book on the Cold War, Khrushchev's jib about Stalin, safely made, of course, once Stalin was dead. Uh, all sorts of people were heroes after Stalin as saying that Stalin's idea of strategy, he's talking here about the Cold War, was to keep the anti-aircraft batteries around uh, Moscow on 24-hour alert for imminent attack. In other, in other words, that there is an inherent bellicosity. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think Stalin was very willing to make recourse to war his central priority, but he also believed that capitalist systems and non-Soviet systems would collapse through their inherent contradictions. He was, after all, in his own eyes, a theorist of the of the left, a theorist of Marxism. He'd written, of course, um, history, like Churchill, in fact. Uh, well, Churchill's, when I say like Churchill, I mean they'd both written about history. I'm not talking about their respective quality. And... Um, In a way, what he is trying to do is provoke what he sees as the contradictions within um, rival systems, whether they're Japan and Germany or Britain and the United States. And from that point of view, he's both successful and fails. I mean, it's interesting to see that um, in terms of political cohesion, Uh, both the British and the Americans, and indeed the Japanese, and indeed the Germans, uh, fight without a breakdown, a domestic breakdown, um, uh, that might be that that you would assume if you believe in the sort of nonsense of Marxist theory.
1: What What would you say were the major variables which helped to ensure Allied victory?
0: Well, I I actually have, as you know, because I've written a lot about military history, I've argued that you can't see it as a war of, um, in which is explained by productive capacity. That is important, clearly, but you do not win wars simply by having more equipment and More material. I mean, you know, there there is much about military history that, as you know, would uh, um, explain that. I think, first of all, that the Allies proved more effective in um, in alliance than their opponents did, particularly the alliance of the Atlantic powers: uh, Britain, uh, the United States, and the one that most people tend to leave out, which is Canada. that alliance proved very, very uh, effective. Secondly, I think in, in specific military terms, the face of battle, I think a significant improvement in allied fighting quality, which I think is very important and can be seen with the British, the Americans, the Soviets, the Australians. Thirdly, where material is very important is where human beings do not naturally fight, which is at sea and in the air, in both of which the axis is um, is uh, decisively defeated prior to the determinant battles on land. And I think that the Uh, the um, ability of the allies in those areas is really very important. The uh, air assaults, the Anglo uh, uh, American air assault on Germany, the American air assault on Japan are I think very important in economic terms but also in political terms at delivering a very clear message about who has won and what the implications and consequences of this are. And Um, As well as, as it were, chewing up the other side's air power in fruitless attempts to defend their own airspace. Uh, And uh, uh, the success um, in what are the um, most sustained global naval struggle ever at subjugating the Axis navies creates a situation in which the world order is going to be dominated by the United States. And, of course, that is the ultimate um, consequence of World War Two. You know, people often emphasize the Soviet role, and the Soviet role was without a doubt uh, significant, highly significant against the Wehrmacht. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the Soviets, in terms of the war at sea, uh, the wars at sea, I should say, in terms of uh, long-range air power, and indeed in terms prior to August 1945, in terms of the war against um, the um, Japan, the Soviets are really, you know, not there.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Oh, that strategy is extremely important but needs thinking about seriously. An enormous amount about the work on World War II deals with face battle stuff, and when it looks at strategy, just really looks at operations. You need to be acutely thoughtful about multiple contexts and the uh, the interactions of many factors in order to understand strategy. You needed it at the time, and you still need it now. And unfortunately, I would say that of the three levels of war, um, tactical, operational, and strategic, the literature on the strategic side is weakest, and that was what I was trying to help with.
1: On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Gutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.
0: Thank you very much.